All right, good morning, everybody. Uh, we got a little bit of a connection problem this morning, so our text is going to be yellow instead of white, so we'll work on that and get that, get that done. If you got your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're in Genesis 41. Genesis 41, and the title of our lesson is From the Pit to the Palace. From the Pit to the, the, the Palace. Um, I don't know how well y'all can see that. I know most of y'all here have probably been up in the mountains, and uh, you know when you go up in the mountains, and and there's always these things they call an overlook, right? And where it's a place where you can pull your car over, and and it's clear enough that you can kind of see out over the valley or see out over the mountains, and and it gives you a different perspective, right? It, in other words, you, you know you can see, you know you can drive up the mountains and see it one way, but when you get to this overlook and you look back, it's a complete completely different vantage point it's a it's a completely different uh, viewpoint I, I bring that up because I think that's what Genesis 41 is Genesis 41 is kind of like an overlook it's kind of like a it's, it's a vantage point that allows us to see the story of Joseph from a different perspective uh, in one sense when we get here to this chapter we can look back at all the stuff that he's come through and we realize, wow, this was, it, it was all planned out. It all had a, had a purpose. At the same time, we can also look ahead because we know what's coming. And we know how God is going to use uh, Joseph's adversities and some of the things that have happened to him. Uh, so we can see the providence of God at, at work. So again, in that sense, this is kind of like a, a vantage point. So it all begins with two dreams. Let's start reading in verses 1 through 7. It says, After two whole years, uh, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. By the way, uh, even today they say if you go over there, cows feed in the Nile. This was a very common occurrence. It, and you think about feed, cows out in the river uh, coming up and feeding on the, on the grass, you think, well, that's pretty odd, but that's a very natural uh, thing to occur in Egypt. Verse 3, And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and they stood by the other cows, cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh woke up. And he fell asleep again, and he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a, a dream. So <clears throat> Pharaoh, this one night, has these two dreams. Uh, they're different, but they're also very, very similar. And we mentioned last week, if you recall, that, that the Egyptian culture believed that dreams were predictive in nature, that they could foretell the, uh, the, the future, right? So when he wakes up, immediately he thinks, okay, well, I've got, to, I've got to have these dreams interpreted because this is, a, this is a message. Verse 8. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So here he is. He's got these two dreams. He's positive they mean something. He calls for all his counselors, all his wise men, all these magicians, and they come in and they've got absolutely no clue. And so he's very frustrated. Now remember, there's this guy, his cupbearer, his butler, who attends him pretty much at all times. And so he, I'm sure he's in the room, 
and all these magicians are coming in, and all of a sudden the light goes on for him, right? He's a dummy anyway because he forgot about Joseph, but all of a sudden the light goes on, and he says, you know, something like this happened to me a couple years ago, and all of a sudden it just comes, it comes back to him, verse 9 through 14. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. And when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And just as he interpreted to us, that is how it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. So the cupbearer finally remembers what's happened to him. He tells Pharaoh, and he says, Hey, there's this Hebrew uh, over there in the prison, and he interpreted our dreams for us. And Pharaoh said, Go call him. Uh, Joseph comes up, and the first thing he has to do is bathe and shave. Now, by the way, just kind of as a side note, was he probably dirty and needed cleaning up? Yeah, that's, that's true. But this is more than just somebody getting cleaned up. He has to be prepared to go before, uh, he has to be socially acceptable to go before Pharaoh. You see, in that day, Egyptians did not wear beards. Um, in fact, it was considered uh, uh, offensive for a man to wear, to wear a beard. And so Pharaohs were, uh, especially royalty, Hebrew, uh, Egyptians were all clean-shaven. They didn't wear beards. And you may think, well, you know, I've seen a lot of the uh, drawings. Have you ever seen drawings and they wear that? that that's ceremonial. It's like the, um, you know, you go over to England today and there's a judge and he comes out and he always wears the wig. Nobody wears that like that anymore, but they put it on. As, that's exactly what the Pharaohs did when they would, ha- they would have... Uh, these court-appointed things, or they would, ha- they would wear these ceremonial beards, but they actually were clean-shaven because they, they saw that as uh, offensive. The Hebrews, on the other hand, saw a beard as a mark of dignity. But before he comes into Pharaoh, they shave him so he would be socially acceptable uh, to, to Pharaoh. Verse 15, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there's no one here to interpret it. And I have heard it said of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, I've said this often. Let's put ourselves in Joseph's shoes for a moment. He's been languishing in this jail now for a while. We know over two years. And he's brought before Pharaoh, right? Remember two years ago, he asked the cupbearer, When you go back, remember me. Tell Pharaoh about me. And nothing happened. So here he is. He's, he, one moment he's in the jail. Maybe he's making his bed. The next, the next hour he's standing before the most powerful uh, man in the world, right? And so what would be going through your mind? Well, I know what would be going through my mind. Uh, first of all, it would be probably overwhelming, right? That I was, over, I was just here and now I'm here. And if it was me, I'd probably be overly polite. I would be like, hey, you know... Um, uh, just, I'm thinking, okay, there's some way he can get me out of all this prison stuff, right? I, I'm, I would be seeing it as an opportunity, wouldn't you? And I wouldn't want to make any waves. I wouldn't want to go. I mean, I would just do everything I could to make myself look good so that I could get out of this, uh, this prison. And that's what makes Joseph's words 
so remarkable. You see, Pharaoh says to him, I hear you can interpret dreams. I hear you have an ability. I hear you have a, a, a talent. Now, how easy would it have been for Joseph to take credit? How easy? So you could, you could have just said, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do, Pharaoh, you know. And let's, let's talk about this, right? You, you need something. I need something. Let's work a deal, right? I mean, how tempting would that have been? You want out of prison. So everything in you is like, yeah, man, I got this ability. Now, if you want it, let's, let's, let's work out a little, a little bargain right here. It would have been so easy to try to capitalize on that moment, to trade your talent or your ability for Pharaoh. But Joseph doesn't do uh, anything like that. He is very clear on the source of his success. I was thinking as I was reading this week about uh, Elizabeth and her standing out at the, the graduation. It's so easy when there's 1,000 people or 5,000 people or you're outside the church to just leave God out of it, right? It's much harder to say, no, it's all about him and not about me. And that's exactly what Joseph did. He basically says, it's not me. It's God in me. God is going to give you the interpretation. He gives all the glory and all the credit to, to God. It remember, reminded me this week of uh, 2 Samuel 2.30. God says, those that honor me, I will honor. Those that honor me, I, I, I will honor. Jesus, Jesus, we go on down in the New Testament. It says, if you're not embarrassed before men of me, I won't be ashamed before my Father of you. Right? Honor me, I'll, I'll honor you. And that is Joseph his first concern is with God's glory, not his own. And I just think that is absolutely uh, remarkable. And you know, we talked last week about disappointment with God. See how he comes out of those two years? He comes out of those two years, he'd say, well, I, you know what, he could have just as easily abandoned God and walked away from God, but he comes out of that two, year, two years in prison stronger than ever. And his very first words is, I, it's, it's all about God. I, and he honors God. I think that's just absolutely remarkable. Verse 17. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile, and seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known they had even eaten them, for they were still as ugly as they were at the beginning. And then I woke up. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing up, growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams are Pharaoh are one. Now I want you to notice how many times he mentions God, Okay as he begins to give this interpretation. It's not like he just mentioned God one time and then now it's all about me. It's all, he, he works God all through this. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of the Pharaoh of one, God has revealed to Pharaoh what, what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. In other words, they have the same meaning. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. 
But after that, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very uh, severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream, the fact that you had that dream twice, Pharaoh, means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it uh, about. I counted four times in that uh, interpretation that Pharaoh uh, hears from Joseph's own mouth that God has determined what's about to happen. God has revealed to you what he's about to do. God has fixed this thing. God will surely bring it about. Now, I want you to remember, he's talking to the most powerful man on the face of the planet. He is talking to the most powerful man on the face of the planet, a, a man that doesn't believe in God, doesn't know anything about the Hebrew God, but he and Joseph's just standing there with, and saying, this is how it is. Joseph is letting this king know in, in a very unmistakable way that it's God and God alone who's in control. Pharaoh, you might be the most powerful king, but you are nothing in comparison to the sovereign God of the, of the universe. You see, Joseph understood something about God. I want you to listen to me very carefully here. God, he understood that God brings prosperity and God brings famine. God brings peace and God brings strife. God, God is a, he's sovereign, right? And he's not afraid to say that to the most powerful man in the world. When he's called before kings, he is not afraid to say, I serve a sovereign God. What about us? You see, I, I sometimes hear Christians, when, when other people are going through bad things, we almost apologize for the sovereignty of God. We, we almost try to get God off the hook. But let me tell you something. God has never asked for you to get him off the hook. He is perfectly comfortable with who he is. He is perfectly comfortable with his, with his sovereignty. See, the Bible plainly teaches that God is in, is in control of both of those things, Right? You and I should bear witness to his sovereignty, just like Joseph. Joseph wasn't afraid to do that. We need to bear witness to the sovereignty of God and, and then let God speak for himself. God, God will take care of his own reputation. He, he, he can handle that. We are just to testify to his character uh, and sometimes not apologize for it, but just testify to it. All right, so he's interpreted the dream and you could think, well, that should be the end of it, but it's not. Joseph is going to make a proposal. And I think this is something that we often miss right here. And I think this is probably one of the, the neatest things about this story. So the bottom line is that he tells him, okay, you're going to have seven years of plenty, and you're going to have seven years of, of famine, and the famine is going to be bad. It's going to be so bad that no, you're going to forget all about the plenty. Okay. Now, Joseph has an amazing gift from God, and that is the ability to interpret dreams. Does he not? And it is this dream that gets him in front. It is this ability or this gift that gets him in front of Pharaoh. But Joseph has another gift. Just as much a God-given gift as the ability to interpret dreams. And that is he has a talent and a gift to administrate. Okay, now let me tell you, it's not all inspiring, is it? It's not something people are going to go talk about. Well, that Joseph can really administrate, right? Nobody's going to make a big, a big deal about all that. But the fact is, this guy has a talent to administrate. Potiphar saw it, didn't he? 
Potiphar said, man, this guy's, this guy's so good, you just, I'll put you in charge of everything. I'll, I only have to worry about what I'm going to have for dinner. When he gets thrown into prison, the jailer recognized it, didn't he? The jailer says, man, this guy's got a talent. He can, he can administrate better than anybody I've ever seen. Here, just take, you run the jail while you're here. I mean, while he's in, in Potiphar's house, he's honing his abilities. While he's in prison, he's honing his abilities. He's using the talents that God gave him wherever he is. Okay? So he's not only able to foretell the future, he's got this gift or this talent to analyze these complex situations and, and figure out what the solution is. So he goes a step further than just interpreting the dream, and he's going to offer a solution. And I want you to understand, this is just as much a gift from God as the ability to interpret dreams. In fact, the ability to interpret dreams, don't miss this, that got him into Pharaoh's palace but it's his ability to administrate that's going to save his family. Just to interpret the dream just got him in there. That didn't save anybody, but his ability to administrate is what God is going to use to actually save his family. Verse 33. So this is what he says. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years... And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so the land may not perish through the famine. Now, I read a couple commentaries that said, you know, Joseph was pretty smart, right? He saw an opportunity and he took advantage of it. He said, you know, you're going to need somebody to run this whole thing. Why don't you, you know, why don't you appoint somebody? I don't see that at all. I, I just, I, when I read that, I thought, well, that's, that makes no sense at all. That's not Joseph. I don't think it ever entered his mind that he would be the one to run this thing. First of all, as we said, he never, when he comes in, he, he hasn't yet mentioned his freedom, has he? He hasn't said anything about get me out of prison or anything like that. By the way, don't forget, the man is a Hebrew slave. Who would, who would even... How would it even enter his mind that he could go from a Hebrew slave to second in command, the vice president of Egypt? I mean, that wouldn't even enter his mind. So he's, he's just offering a solution. He's not necessarily saying, I'm the one uh, to do it. But of course, Pharaoh recognizes something different, and Joseph gets a promotion. Verse 37, so this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Now, two years before this, here's old Joseph, right? And he just wants out of prison. He's got, he, he doesn't, he's thinking, boy, if I can just go home. I can just get out of here and go home. Everything will be great. And I, I mean, when I look at this, I keep thinking of Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than you could even ask or think. I don't think it's ever even entered Joseph's mind that God could do something as great as this. Verse 42. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen, and he put a gold chain about his neck. 
and he made him ride in the second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Now, a couple things here. Pharaoh takes two very highly symbolic actions to kind of help seem it. Again, you're taking a Hebrew slave, which Egyptians despised Hebrews, and you're elevating him to the vice presidency of the land. You have to do something to make him acceptable to the people. He does two things. The first thing he does is he gives him an Egyptian name. He can't be have a Hebrew name anymore. If he's going to be the vice president of Egypt, he's got to have an uh, a, 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 a Egyptian name. Now, I'm just going to tell you, nobody knows what this name means. Okay? I've seen all kind of different options, but the fact is nobody really knows. And it doesn't really matter. The important thing is the name signifies, Joseph, you are now an Egyptian. That's the point, right? It didn't matter what he called him. The fact is, you're an Egyptian now. The people will see you as an Egyptian because you have an Egyptian name. The second thing he does that's highly symbolic is he gives him an Egyptian wife. Now, that may bother a lot of us, right? Because, you know, Abraham, he says, he tells for Isaac, don't take a Canaanite wife, right? And Isaac tells Jacob, don't take a Canaanite wife. But it turns out, if you go even later when the law was codified, the only thing that was prevented them from marrying was Canaanite women. It, it was never any prevention about other races like Egyptians. For example, Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 13 says this, When you go out to war against your enemies and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be his wife, to be your wife, and he goes through some things, and, and she has to go through a period of mourning. She has, to, she has to do some different things. But after that, it says, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. So they were permitted to marry into other races, but they could not, could not marry Canaanite women. That was enshrined in the law. So at the end of the day, it was actually okay for him uh, him to do that. By the way, he's not going to find a Hebrew wife in Egypt anyway, and there were bigger things at play here. So here's the fulfillment, verse 46. So Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh. Now, you remember how old, anybody remember how old he was when he was sold into slavery? 17. So he has now been in Egypt for 13 years. He was 17 when his brother sold him into Egypt, uh, sold him into slavery. He is now 30 years old when he gets out of prison and he enters the service. So 13 years he's been there um, in, in Egypt. So he was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh, and he went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he even stopped trying to measure it, for it could not be measured. And before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, which means to forget, 
For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. I, I don't think we should understand that in a negative way. Um, I don't think Joseph's saying, I don't care for my family anymore. I, I've, I've blotted them out of my mind. But I think the fact that God has delivered him out of prison, blessed him. I mean, here he is. He's Not only is he uh, abundantly prosperous, but he's using the gift God has gave him to save millions of people. In fact, it, it could even be more than that. So, I mean, he is, he is, it's like unbelievable what's going on in his life. And it, I think he's moved, what he's saying is I've moved beyond the painful memories of, of what my brothers have, have done to me. Now, he's 13 years out, right? 13 years from being sold into slavery. And I think at this point, he can look back and he realizes, man, God has been in control all the way. The dream that I had... Remember the dream he had back, I believe, in Genesis 37 when his brother's sheaves bowed down to him? I think he can see more and more this is coming to uh, fruition. Uh, the last verse is 52 to 57. The name of the second son he called Ephraim, which means fruitful, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, and whatever he tells you to do, do it. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses, and he sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. All right, so there's our chapter this morning. And as we've been doing for the last few weeks, we, I want to look at this chapter and find, okay, what kind of lessons can, can we learn, right? I mentioned at the very beginning that this is kind of a, like a vantage point. And it's kind of, we, we've, climbed, we've been climbing through all this adversity and we finally get to this point and he's elevated to the second of command. What kind of lessons can we learn from this chapter or this vantage point? in Genesis. I think there are three or four of them. Number one, we keep coming back to it over and over and over again, but that is the providence of God or the sovereignty of, of God. Think about it this way. There's a lot of bad things that's happened in his life. I mean, he's gone through some things that you and I can't even dream of having to go through. But think about it this way. Had Joseph not been sold by his brothers into slavery, he would have never been in Potiphar's house, yes? If he had never been in Potiphar's house, he would not have been falsely accused of rape. If he had not been falsely accused of rape, he would have never been thrown in prison. If he had never been thrown in prison, he would have never interpreted the cupbearer's dream. And if he would have never interpreted the cupbearer's dream, he would have never ended up in front of Pharaoh. And if he hadn't ended up in front of Pharaoh, he wouldn't have saved the lives of millions of people and his family. If that isn't the providence of God, I don't know what is. I mean, you just go look at it. Everything just was all playing out just the way God wanted it to play out. Romans 8, 28. This is, it is a beautiful example of that scripture right there. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. God has not abandoned you. God is not taking his hand off of you. God is walking through you with a series of circumstances, and he's got an end in mind. 
He's got something in mind for you. What we have to do is trust 13 years. 13 years he's in Egypt. Some of that in slavery, toiling. Some of that in the prison, falsely accused of rape. Two years just completely forgotten about. And all that time, God's, God's just biding his time for the right time to elevate him, the right time to show him what he had for him. That is the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. That's looking back. But looking ahead, you and I know what's going to happen, right? See, we already know the story. As a result of this promotion, he's now going to be able to save his, his family. He's going to be able to save the nation uh, of Israel. Everything's working out exactly like God uh, planned it. Let me tell you this. You and I should be humbled by the fact that God loves us. God cares for us. He says, I know the plans that I have for you, right? But let me tell you, God is, I always, the thing I find amazing about God is he can do a million and one things at the exact same time. He can be doing something in your life and something in your life and something in her life and his life, and it's all just working out perfectly. And you see, even though God is working in our lives individually, he's got a bigger thing and a bigger plan and purpose, and that's for us corporately, Okay? Think, take spiritual gifts, for example. God gives you a spiritual gift. But it's not for you necessarily. What's it for? It's for the body. It's for the benefit of others. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. Each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 1 Peter 4, 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. So it's not about just you. God's not, I'm just going to give you a gift because I love you. That's all fine and dandy. But he's got a bigger plan, and we should be using those gifts in service to others. The second thing I think we learn out of this vantage point of Genesis 41 is we need to be faithful in little things. Okay, Joseph's life is an absolute commentary on the words of Jesus. Jesus said this in Luke 16.10, He who is faithful in a very little thing will also be faithful in much. But if you are unrighteous or unfaithful in little things, you'll be unfaithful in the big things. See, every single one of us in our life have been given a lot of little things. Joseph is a slave in Potiphar's house, and he's faithful. He, he hates his situation. He don't like it. He don't want to be there. But while he's there, he uses the gifts that God has given him. He's faithful. Man, I gotta, I gotta run to town and buy groceries again. I mean, I'm, you know, but he does it right. Then he goes to the prison, and the and the jailer says, "You run everything." And Joseph's like, "Man, I don't want to be here." But while he's there, he uses what God has given him. He's faithful in the little things, and then one day God says, "Here, take all the, take take everything. You've been faithful in a little. Take take a lot." Okay, that's a huge lesson for you and I. Whether you're in Potiphar's house or a slave or you're in the prison or you're the vice president of the United States or the vice president of the country, the fact is, be faithful in little and then God can give you more. Be faithful wherever God has placed you, right? You see, only those who are faithful in little things should have any expectation of bigger things. If you're not being faithful in little things, why would we ever expect God to give us anything more? 
In fact, our primary duty is not to dream these huge dreams of one day God's going to do this and this. No, our primary duty is to be faithful in where God has put us and with what God has given us. Joseph did exactly that. A third lesson uh, that we learn from this vantage point of Genesis 41 is there are different strokes for different folks. Now, let me tell you what I mean by this. We need to be very careful about using Joseph as a model of suffering. Okay? In other words, we all go through adversity and we all suffer. Okay? That's just part of life. You're going to go through things. And we might look at Joseph and say, you know what, I'm going through this right now, but one day... God is going to elevate me above all these other people around here, right? I mean, we could look at that and say, he's got, he's got something big in mind for me. But that's not necessarily uh, true. The, the best way to contrast this, or the best way to make this point, is to look at the life of Moses. Joseph begins his life as a shepherd, right? He's in the field with his brothers. He is elevated to the palace. He goes from a shepherd all the way up to the palace. That's a cool story. It's a great story. But Moses goes the other way. Moses begins his life in the palace, and he has to leave the palace and become a shepherd in his father-in-law's, right? It's the exact opposite. See, God used these two men. He had plans for both of them, but he used them in 180 degrees different ways. See, God's not a cookie-cutter God. God's not saying, well, I'm always going to do it that way, or I'm always going to do it that way. He may have something completely different in plan for you. He does what's necessary. It was necessary to elevate Joseph to the second in command to save all these people, including his own family. But it was necessary for Moses to leave the royalty of Egypt in order to save uh, the Hebrew people out of slavery. So don't just, we can't use, Joseph is a good example, but it's not the only uh, example. God doesn't use just one method or one pattern to bless uh, everybody. Okay? He may deal with us in entirely different ways. Last thing, a nation in crisis. Listen up carefully to me here because I got convicted about something this week, and so I added this in here. We, we also, you can look back now from this vantage point, and you can see how God is using adversity to Joseph. I mean, he puts him through all this stuff, man, and Joseph just gets, I think all this adversity makes Joseph stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. His faith in God just gets more mature, and, and it, it, I mean, it just molds him into this, into this great man of God. But I don't want you to miss the very thing that, at the end, at the end of the day, God was waiting, 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 and the very thing that elevated him the very thing that, that brought him to where God wanted him to be was a crisis in the nation. A crisis in the nation. You see, that is when Josephs are needed. And, and, I, and I think I was reading this this week, and I thought, man, I need to take notice of this. You see, I think we're all really good prophets of doom. You ever been there? How we go around, boy, this nation's going to hell in a handbasket. And that is absolutely true. We, we say it all the time. It's, it's terrible out there. You know, we're in the last days. We, we just, you know, we're real good prophets of doom. But most of us stop right there. We interpret the season. We interpret the situation like Joseph did, but then we stop. But Joseph didn't stop. Joseph stepped in and had a message of hope. How many of us are doing that? 
How many of us stop with the doom and gloom and never step in and say, but I've got a message. I've got good news. See, we, we you and I, there, there's a disaster coming. There is no doubt in my mind. There is a disaster coming. But you and I have a message of hope. You and I have the ability through the Spirit of God to analyze the situation and step forward and say, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a solution for the coming disaster. Listen, there's no doubt that we live in days of tremendous difficulty. There is no doubt. It, it doesn't, by the way, don't, I don't think it takes a lot of wisdom or a lot of insight. If you read the Bible and you look at what's going on, there is a spirit of delusion coming over people. There is a spirit of delusion on people right now. Literally, people out there are doing things against their best interest. I watch them sometimes. How can you do that? Are, are you crazy? No, they're deluded. There's a spirit of blindness coming on them. There is something going on, and it's coming, and it's only going to get worse. I, I believe that. The question is, what are we going to do? Do we just go around and with, with doom and gloom, or do we offer a solution? Are we a Joseph? Do we step forward with a, with a message of hope? You see, the ultimate solution for the problems in America is a spiritual one. It's a spiritual one. See, the, the, the crisis in our country, is a, it's, it's sin. It is sin. It, that's what sin will do. It is a poison. You add it to anything and it poisons. It poisons families. It poisons, it, it's just, it's nasty stuff. The solution is found in a man hanging on a cross by the name of Jesus Christ. That's our message. That man died for our sins. That man went into a grave and rose on the third day, and he's coming again to get those who are his. And on that day, we said it last week, all the adversity is going to be gone. No more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, no more crying, no more any of that stuff. Are we stepping forward with a message of hope to America instead of just doom and gloom? Let's be faithful to do that. Let's be a Joseph. If we take anything out of this, let's be a Joseph and not just come in with the interpretation of the situation, but let's step out with a solution for the interpretation. Let me tell you, we've said this all the time, right? It's in the darkest hour that the light shines brightest. It's in the darkest hour. People are going to be looking for hope. It's like in that famine, right? When that famine, people are looking for bread. We got the bread of life. We, people are going to be hungry, and they're going to be looking for the bread of life. Who is going to have that message for them? Next week, we turn to Genesis 42. Uh, just a quick preview I was telling somebody this week that I thought that those 13 years were, were, that Joseph went through, slavery, prison, accused of rape, all of the stuff, abandoned by his brothers, I thought those were his greatest tests. But I was wrong. I was wrong. I found out this week in 42 that his greatest test is coming up. Abraham Lincoln said this, Any man can go through adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Joseph has unlimited power. What is he going to do with it? That next week we'll see his greatest test. Let's pray. Father.